0: now to the Old Testament, to the book of Haggai, Haggai. You may need the rest of the service time to find it. I had the advantage because I knew that's where I was going to preach from, and I marked it ahead of time. But if you go to the kind of the, almost the middle of your Bible and just start going back, it's very close to the end. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi. So very close to the end, Haggai chapter 1. A long time ago, I read a story about a man who was building a house, and he started with the basement and the foundation, which is a good place to start, and uh, after he had worked for a little while, he had gotten a bright idea. He thought, you know, I will finish off the basement and get it watertight, and then I'll have a place to live while I finish the rest of the house. And so he did that. He did a little extra work, went beyond what he would ordinarily do for the basement. You know, most times I think the, the finished basement, that would probably be the last part of construction. But anyway, he finished off the basement and moved in. And then he got busy with other things, and what with life and one thing and another, uh, building the rest of the house just kind of fell by the wayside. And as I understand the story, he continued to live that way for years so that if you were to drive by his house, you would see a, a a foundation and the beginning of a house there, and a door leading down some steps. But no house, just the beginnings of a house. I have long, or, or in recent years, I've been interested in the portion of Israel's history uh, about the rebuilding that took place after the exile when they were allowed to return to their homeland and begin uh, rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding the walls, and all of that. And um, I i suppose I had known this, but it's not something that really... Uh, Struck the interest of my heart until recent days. The fact that the minor prophets of Haggai and Zechariah—they overlap this period of Israel's history—and uh, we're going to begin looking at, especially Haggai, uh, this evening, and. Uh, We read about both Haggai and Zechariah in Ezra. I believe it's chapter 4, maybe chapter 5 that they are mentioned. Um, But we'll read uh, from Haggai chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts Consider your ways. "'Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house "'that I may take pleasure in it "'and that I may be glorified,' says the Lord. "'You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, "'and when you brought it home, I blew it away. "'Why,' declares the Lord of hosts, "'because of my house that lies in ruins, "'while each of you busies himself with his own house. "'Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, "'and the earth has withheld its produce.' And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's bow our hearts for a moment of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we've already had together. We ask that you will help us as we look into your word. We want to hear the message that you have to speak to us. And, Father, we pray that you alone would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I already mentioned to you a little bit about the context of this story. You may want to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Keep your finger there at Tagi and go back and look at the book of Ezra, and we see a little bit more of what's going on. Uh, It begins with the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Ezra chapter 1 verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. I'll stop the reading right there. This is the beginning of the end of Israel's exile in Babylon, uh, or what is now Persia. Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, God has spoken to him. He's given him the instruction and says it's time for the people to go back. They're to go back and they're to rebuild my house. And so Cyrus makes the decree, and the people uh, prepare themselves. They get ready to leave. Chapter 2 of Ezra is all about uh, the return of the exiles, and you have their detailed uh, information of the various families and and clans that return and the numbers of those people. In chapter 3 of Ezra, the first thing they do is to rebuild the altar and begin seeking god and seeking his favor and then at the end of chapter 3 uh, they begin uh, rebuilding the temple and the foundations are laid. As your chapter 3 and verse 10 says that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, it says, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There was joy. There was optimism. The people, I'm sure, at this point had high hopes. Now, I don't know um, my understanding of the history of what took place during that time is that many of the Israelites... Uh, settled in to life in Babylon, they had homes there, they were part of of the society and culture there, and yet when this opportunity came, apparently there was a good number of them who were still uh, well enough connected to their heritage and to their history that they wanted to go back, they wanted to renew the worship uh, of Jehovah as they had been taught. And so, when they returned and they began the work, uh, you know how the, the, the emotions of that run at a high plane when you're building something, there's excitement, there's growth happening, and when they see the foundations laid and they have their worship service celebrating this new beginning, uh, it says the people were praising the Lord and shouting with a great shout. But... That only lasted for so long until the work stopped. And if we back up a little bit from Ezra and read Haggai, those verses that we read from chapter 1 of Haggai, it, it would be easy for us to interpret that message with a harsh tone. I don't know if any of you heard it that way, but I tend to hear it that way uh, when God is speaking to the Israelites and he says to them, you are dwelling, you're living in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins still. And uh, because of that, I've allowed drought and trouble and and uh, really it's economic recession that has come upon them. He says you're the, if you earn wages, you put it in a bag with holes. That's a, that's a good Kind of a good image of of a failing economy. And the Lord says through the prophet, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house that I may take pleasure in it. We could read it uh, harshly. But I think if we back up and read Haggai in the light of Ezra, it, it should help us not to be too overly judgmental of the Israelites. You've heard the phrase, walking a mile in someone's shoes. This uh, phrase, walking a mile in someone's shoes, it came from a poem by a lady named Mary Lathrop. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but she was an American poet. She was a licensed preacher, in the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1871. She was a temperance reformer and a suffragist, and she wrote a poem called Judge Softly. And uh, in her words, she was uh, speaking about walking a mile in someone's moccasins. This is the way she put it. This is not the entire poem, but just a portion of it. She said, Pray, don't find fault with the man that limps or stumbles along the road. Unless you have worn the moccasins he wears or stumbled beneath the same load. There may be tears in his souls that hurt, though hidden away from view. The burden he bears placed on your back may cause you to stumble and fall too. Don't sneer at the man who is down today unless you have felt the same blow that caused his fall or felt the, sh- the shame that only the fallen know. You may be strong, but still the blows that were his, unknown to you in the same way, may cause you to stagger and fall too. Don't be too harsh with the man that sins, or pelt him with words, or stone, or disdain. Unless you are sure, you have no sins of your own, and it's only wisdom and love that your heart contains. For you know if the tempter's voice should whisper as soft to you As it did to him when he went astray, it might cause you to falter too. Walking a mile in someone's shoes. When I read Haggai by itself, I hear the message harshly, but when I back up and read it in the light of Ezra, which is really the context of uh, what Haggai is preaching, it gives us a little bit of insight about why the work stopped. Why did the work stop? Incidentally, it stopped from somewhere between 10 to 16 years. That's a long time. They've gone back to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Israel, to rebuild the walls, to renew their, their society and their civilization. But the work stopped. Why did it stop? Well, the first reason it stopped is that the people got discouraged. They got discouraged. Look at Ezra chapter 4 and verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They the, the people there, and what has happened, this is some of the people that remained behind in Israel, and uh, other peoples of other nations were brought in, and they intermarried, and it created the uh, the people of the Samaritans. They wanted to come in and, and be a part of what was going on. Um, And that not taking place, they began to discourage and dishearten the people of Judah. They were discouraged. Not only did they become discouraged, they grew to be disillusioned. Disillusioned. Um, In other words, they, they lost sight of why they were there. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2 Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Think about this with me. What do we do when when we feel like we have a handle on God's will? Like we, we know what the next thing, we think we know what the next thing should be. And so we begin to engage that, and we put ourselves to work, and we put our resources to work, and and try to go about fulfilling what, to the best of our knowledge, is God's plan for the next thing. And then we encounter resistance. We come up against obstacles and against a wall, and it seems as if... You know, everything is going against us, and we're pushing uphill. And I'll tell you the truth. I, the, the way my understanding of how God leads is, is uh, I can sometimes think, I wonder if this is really God's timing for what I thought was His will. You know what I'm talking about? When we begin to experience resistance and push back, and, and we might think, well, maybe... I thought I I thought I knew I thought I believed that this was God's will for what I was to do next. But maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. And to be fair, there are times when God does use we we talk about Uh, the providential direction of God and we use terms like God opening and closing doors and some people say things like well you know when God closes a door he opens a window and that kind of thing and God making a way and I do believe that God will uh, providentially lead and guide in such a way that he he will allow us a path for us to fulfill his will to fulfill his plan But I also know that we have an adversary, and our adversary is not always simply just the devil that comes against us, but it's also the the people in the world around us that are resistant to God's will. So the Israelites, as they had begun the work that God had opened the door for them to do, they, they had a good beginning and they were joyful and excited as the foundations were laid. But then when opposition came and, and the people of the area began to resist and they began to have to work harder to move forward, they got discouraged and disillusioned and they said, well, maybe this isn't the right time for us to rebuild the house of the Lord. And they redirected their energies. It's a good idea to stay busy. If you can't do, if you can't work on what you intended to work on, find something else to work on while you're waiting to get back to the thing that you really wanted to work on, right? Um, Did that make any sense? Okay, Haggai (laughs) Haggai chapter 1 verse 4, God speaks to the people through the prophet and says, "Is, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see what had happened, the people coming to the realization that they didn't think they could work on God's house at that time, they decided, well, we can't work on God's house, I guess maybe we should just work on our own houses. And boy, did they work on their own houses! They worked on their own houses to such a point that they got to have some pretty nice houses to live in. Nothing wrong with having a nice house to live in. That's fine. It's wonderful. I so appreciate the the wonderful home that we have to live in. Um, but you know, one of the things that they had done—it's interesting. My understanding is some of the the material, the wood that had been brought along to be used in the rebuilding of the temple, since they couldn't use that in rebuilding the temple, they used that same wood in their own houses. They got discouraged, they got disillusioned, and then they redirected their energies and and my understanding of the timeline, and it's interesting, you may have noticed Haggai in, in this part, uh, there's a very careful recording of dates They're down to the very day and the very year of when things started and when things stopped and when different things happened. My understanding, it was somewhere between, it was right around 10 years that the work stopped completely on the temple. So, how was the work renewed? How was the work replenished? Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1 tells us how the rebuilding began again. It started again when God sent preachers to the people. Ezra chapter 5 verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shiltiel and Jeshua or Joshua the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. God sent preachers. I was thinking about this this afternoon. Uh, the importance of preaching and uh, was reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul where he talked about how God uses the foolishness of preaching. But do you know what's interesting in context there? He's not not saying that preaching is foolishness. He's talking about the, the subject matter of his preaching which was the cross of Jesus Christ that he said was foolishness to the world but he wasn't saying that preaching is foolishness now i don't you know i don't want to pump myself up and uh, you know, be like Uncle Buddy Robinson when he was waiting, as the story I understand was at the back door, and people were walking out and shaking shaking his hands. And, and uh, you know, one was going out and telling, oh, what a wonderful message, Brother Robinson, how great that was. And, and uh, as they walked by, he prayed and said, oh, Lord, don't let him puff me up. Don't let him puff me up. <clears throat> and then a little while after, somebody else came along and was kind of critical of his message, and, and uh, he said to the Lord, well, don't let him puff me down either. I was reminded of the story of a young preacher who, uh, after he had preached a message, one of his parishioners going by at the close of the service said to him, oh, pastor, that was such a wonderful message. You must be one of the great expositors of our time. Well, on the way home, he told his wife, kind of fishing, you know, fishing, told his wife what the the person, what the parishioner said to him, and and, uh, he said to his wife, he asked her, he said, dear, I wonder really how many great expositors there are in our time, to which she said, well, it's one less than you think. There was another preacher I read about (coughs) who boasted that all the time he needed to prepare for his sermon was the time that it took him to walk from the parsonage to the church next door. And so the church bought a new parsonage eight miles away from the (laughs) church (laughs) so he'd have more time to prepare. Oh, but God uses the ministry of preaching, and it's not the it's not the man, it's not the uh, the eloquence uh, uh, or the training of the pastor. I've seen men and known men that, in their uh, you know, you could just tell their their training was lacking. But they were men who made themselves available to God, and God used them in powerful ways. God sent preachers. I'm going to look at the message that Haggai preached. And uh, just very quickly, Haggai preached to them a three-point sermon, a three-point outline. And the first thing that he said was, you need to put God first. Chapter 1, verse 4, is it a time for you to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You need to put God first in your lives. Make him the priority. You need to believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. This is kind of hidden in the, in the message here, in the text, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. Then verses 9 and 11, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruins. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land." This is a reference to the covenant promises of God to the nation of Israel. Where way back there in the time of of, uh, Moses, he had told them, if you obey me and you follow my ways, I will bless you and make you a blessing. But if you fail to obey me and you disregard my commandments, I will bring upon you the diseases of Egypt that you left behind and I'll bring drought and pestilence. And what God is doing here is reminding them of the covenant promises. So Haggai preaches to the people, he says you need to put God first, you need to remember God's promises, and then finally honor God's name. Verses 7 and 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And this is how God began the renewing of the people. Uh, begin the the renewing of the rebuilding and as I look at this and I read this story I'm not going to take time to go into the rest of of chapter one of Haggai but but the next part if you have headings in in various sections in your bible uh, right above verse 12 in my bible it says the people obey the lord the people obey the lord They heard the message, they heard the preaching, and they said, you're right, this is exactly what we need to do. And they, as far as I understand the the story from reading Haggai and reading Ezra, they did a 180 quickly and began again to rebuild. And you see, this tells me that this story is about a failure of good people. This was not the behavior of a rebellious people who were rejecting God and rejecting God's word and purposefully disregarding God's commandments. These were good people who wanted to do God's will, but they got discouraged and disillusioned, and because of that, they got sidetracked for a time. And so God spoke to them through the prophet, through the preaching uh, of the prophet, and reminded them it was simply the failure of good people. I read uh, about uh, pastor and author Stu Weber, uh, a good man, a good pastor, and he said that he had developed quite a temper while he was growing up, and it blossomed into full bloom while he was in high school and college. And then he said he went into the military, which he said didn't do anything to help curb his temper or bring it under control, which I can imagine. And then he went into the ministry. And early on in his ministry, he learned that he needed to stay out of the, you know, occasionally the church gatherings, play games together or what have you. And he said he learned he needed to stay out of those situations because in competition occasionally his temper would flare and he learned to avoid those situations where there was potential for him to have a problem with his temper and he said a decade passed and he hadn't had a flash of temper for years and he said he had been thinking the lord had been good and had been helping him but then he said his oldest son made the high school varsity basketball team and he said i again began living my life through my son and Stu Weber terrorized the referees at his son's high school football game good man good pastor author but kept on having trouble losing his temper on one occasion he said he had been seated in the second row and he wound up on the floor level where the game was going on, with no recollection of how he had gotten there. And he began to get nasty letters from church members about his temper, who he said later, reflecting back, he said, they were exactly right about my problems with my temper. But then he said he got another note from someone who said, Stu, I know your heart. I know that's not you. I know that you want to live for Christ and his reputation, and I know that that's not happened at these ball games. If it would be helpful to you, I'd come to the games with you and sit beside you. And Stu Weber said, It saved my life. It was an invitation, a gracious extension of truth. That man assumed the best and believed in me, and it helped him. I'm talking about the failure. Sometimes good people fail. Sometimes good people falter. How do we recover? How do we get back on track? And I, you know, I can tell that these were good people by one, how God dealt with them, and then by how they responded when God did deal with them. Their response was quick obedience to the word of God. You see, they simply needed reminding of the priorities of their life. They needed their faith renewed and encouraged. God used the prophet to remind them of those priorities and to encourage their faith. Ezra, you remember chapter 5, it says that the prophet, when the prophets uh, Haggai and Zechariah began preaching to them, it says they stayed with them, supporting them. They were encouraging them along the way. And I, I will go on just one verse uh, further uh, down in uh, verse 13. Haggai, after the people began to obey, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that encouraging to be reminded after you've gone through a period of time when rebuilding has stopped, nothing is happening, no more forward progress, you've been discouraged and disillusioned, and, and then... God comes to you through his messenger and preaches uh, the truth and then you obey and God says, "I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you. And then their focus was restored. They were simply refocused on the task at hand. God says, it's not time for you, it's not time for you to build your own houses, your priority needs to be building my house. And they walked in obedience. I'm so glad that we have a God who is, Long suffering, who is kind to his people, and he knows our hearts. When we, I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not excusing uh, failure in anybody. I'm not saying failure is okay. I'm simply saying failure isn't final. And God knows the heart of the person that has failed, and when he sees our hearts and understands that our motive, our intention is to serve him, he will be faithful to come along and speak to us and help us to get back on track. And as we hear that message and we are quick to obey, God then is quick to come alongside us and encourage us and say, I am with you. Praise God. Let's stand together.